Well, people of God, I hope to return to Romans soon, but for tonight, if you will, turn to the book of Acts, the fourth chapter. And even though there are many, many things in this section of Scripture upon which we could comment, I want to focus upon the holiness of the church, or if you want to subtitle, the fear of the Lord. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32. Will you pray with me before we begin to read? And now, Heavenly Father, we come at the end of a day in which we have been privileged to worship your name, to back off from those many duties and obligations that we face during the week so that we may commune with you and fellowship with your people and gather for worship. And we ask indeed that our hearts will be refreshed as we regard this day as a special time set aside by your own command in order that your name might be extolled. And as we turn to this passage tonight, we ask that you will give to us a great and deep sense of your holiness and also a deep, deep gratitude that we are forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus. But also, Father, that we might have a right understanding of what it means that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that we might learn something of the holiness of the church as we think also about the holiness of our God. In the name of Christ, we ask and pray these things. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32, into chapter 5, through verse 11. It says the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that... Any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it 
that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. People of God, of all of the attributes that belong to the church, the one that Satan most hates undoubtedly is the holiness of the church. For in holiness, the church is most like her Lord. And so we see here an attack on the church very early in the book of Acts at this very point. Now, rarely does opposition destroy the church. That is to say, some local congregations may be destroyed, uh, such as were found in the Islamic uh, hordes that took over Turkey, uh, but the church continues. So the church in Acts is opposed, and opposition is not killing the church. The life of the church showed in its benevolence, the way in which they loved one another and cared for one another and made sure that no one had any, any needs. Believers cared for Christ's body. They met needs. They were sacrificial. And Barnabas is an example of a believer putting others above himself, so that Barnabas means son of encouragement. God was so obviously among them, so obviously at work. There was such incredible love, and the gospel of Christ was influencing the way in which they cared one for another. All of these things are happening. And so the opposition that Satan has aroused against the church is doing nothing to hinder the church. As a matter of fact, the opposition is spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the evil one tries a different tactic. He will, he will threaten the existence of the church from within at this very point of her holiness. So as we move into this section of scripture, and we're only going to focus on a few things, I would ask you to note the threat from within. We have this man, his name, his name is Ananias, and he imitated Barnabas externally. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, obviously was at the forefront of helping to provide for the needs of the people of God, encouraging and showing love and showing mercy. Ananias thought, well, evidently he thought, I like that kind of honor and I like that kind of respect. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell property, just as many of the Christians are doing in this church, and I'm going to hold back a certain price, but I'm going to say that I'm giving the whole price for the property. And so he imitated in an external way the holiness of one of the members of the church, Barnabas, and of other members that were sacrificially giving But in the process, we find that Ananias had a dishonest heart. There was something fundamentally wrong. He had a dishonest heart. Now, he was under no obligation to do this at all. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 5, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God." He was under no obligation whatsoever to sell the property and to give any of it. It was all at his disposal to do with what he thought was best. 
But he is attempting to deceive the church, and in so doing, he is lying to the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, he is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. His own heart is dreadfully deceived. This man has no idea of what it means that God is the omniscient God. He has no idea what it means that God is holy in all of his ways. And in verse 3 of chapter 4, when we read, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself parts of the proceeds of the land? There's a corresponding linguistic connection to the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that uses similar language so that the writer would have us to see the connection between Achan, who held back what was the Lord's and hid the gold in his tent when he was called upon to devote it all to God. So just as Achan in the Old Testament lied to God, so we have Ananias in the New Testament church lying to God. All sin is covetousness at heart. Have you ever thought about that? It's what I want rather than what God wants. It's taking rather than giving. It is seeking self-praise rather than honor and praise for the living and the true God. And so Ananias is fundamentally dishonest and shows contempt for God. In Proverbs 15, 8, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, and yet that is what he has brought. And so he has a dishonest heart, but also he has a hypocritical heart. And so we see here very clearly the sin of hypocrisy, don't we? We see Ananias filled with self-will and presumption, desiring his own honor, filled with his own ego. Satan filled his heart, and he was willing that his heart be filled by Satan. Now, if there's anything that God makes plain in his word concerning our hearts and our attitudes toward him, God hates mask playing. He hates hypocrisy. He hates when we, when we attempt to wear masks and wear before him falsehood. God detests that. And so we see that in the great contention between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Pharisees so often in the Gospels, this is the point of contention. <clears throat> For example, in Luke 12, 1, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And so the Lord Jesus Christ warns his church against wearing masks. So he's a dishonest man, he's a hypocrite, and also he's a liar. He's a liar. He pretended to be who he was not. And verses 3 and 4 tell us he lied to the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, he lied to God. And so he is a liar. He is willing to destroy his church's witness so that his own personality would be stroked and so that people would think well of him. Let us pray for one another that we will never bring disrepute upon the name of Christ. And where that starts is in private, in our closets, in our own hearts before the Lord, where no one sees but God. No one knows what we're thinking but Him. No one knows what we're feeling but Him. And if we're going to play games in private, we will play games in public. 
Now, what does all of this say about the human heart apart from grace? That we can actually have a heart that is so far from God because of our depravity that we will lie to Him, that we will mask as if we could our hearts before Him, that we would be filled with hypocrisy before Him? I'm telling you, my friend, the more I see of my own heart and my own need of grace and the more I study the Scriptures, when we speak of the total depravity of man, I don't think we've really scratched the surface in understanding how deeply sinful and rebellious we are by nature. And so the result is the judgment of God. He came in. He lied to the Holy Spirit. He lied to God. He lied to the apostles. He lied to the church. And he fell dead. He breathed his last. And the young men came and picked him up, wrapped him, and buried him. They took him away. The heart, the heart can be unrenewed amidst great blessing. Could you have imagined greater blessing than what is seen in this church? Pentecost has recently taken place. The gospel is spreading. People are loved and cared for. There is great grace and there is great fear. And in the midst of all of this, the heart was unrenewed among great blessing. And when this happened, and this man was taken out of this world into the next, having lied to the Holy Spirit, we are told that great fear filled the church. So in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it, and rightly so. Rightly so. Well, then the same thing essentially happens with his wife. About three hours later, she comes in. Obviously, they're in cahoots. There's been some agreement beforehand. And uh, she is asked by the apostles, did you sell such and such a property for such and such a price? And she responds, oh, yes, that's what we agreed upon. That's what we sold it for. And uh, when that happens, Peter says in verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So the same thing happens with Sapphira three hours later, and the scene repeats itself Because it's very important for us to remember that we never sin alone. And as I've contemplated this text, I think that it is peculiarly strange to remember that it is a husband-wife who together contrive to attempt to fool God and His church and to lie to the Holy Spirit. When a husband is called upon to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, to nourish her, to cherish her, to care for her, to sacrifice for her. That's the husband's call. This man obviously led his wife into ungodliness. Perhaps she led him, but ultimately it falls at his doorstep as the spiritual leader of his home. They conspired together, a husband and wife, they conspired together to deceive and refused the opportunity to repent. She was given at least another three hours before she came in, in which she could have repented before the Lord, but she didn't do so. She came and she lied. And again, what happens? 
We are told that great fear, verse 11, came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. There but by the grace go I, others must have thought as they have within the space of three hours seen two of their church members carried out and buried. I think I would be afraid too, wouldn't you? I think as I read the text, it fills my heart with an appropriate fear because there is appropriate fear in the Christian life. And I think that that is indeed what the purpose of the text is. Second thing as we move on is for us to consider that God's church is holy. God's church. In verse 11, did you notice, in great fear came upon the whole church. Now that's the word ecclesia, and it is the first time that the word church is used in the book of Acts. Great fear came upon the church. Now the way in which the term ecclesia is generally explained in, in preaching and teaching is that we have... Um, we have ek, which means out of, kaleo, which means called, and so the church means the called out ones. Well, the church is the called out ones, but that's not what the word means. It's not a matter of etymology, it's a matter of usage. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word ekklesia was the word that came closest to the Hebrew word kahal, which means assembly. And so the assembly in the wilderness... The church in the wilderness, the church in the New Testament is being identified with the Old Testament people of God. One people of God throughout the ages. So when we assemble here on the Lord's Day, we are the assembly of Israel, if you will. We are God's people that have gathered. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are God's assembly, God's dwelling place, the new temple. We have a divine origin. We are not the Rotary Club. We have a divine origin. The holy God is the one who has brought about his church. And so God calls his church to holiness and to reflect his character. We are his assembly just as surely as in Exodus 24, the assembly that was sprinkled by blood was his assembly. So we are the assembly of God called to be holy. Now, keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians 10, and let's read a few verses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the holiness of God, the holiness of the church is underscored again. I'm just going to read the verses. This warning against idolatry that comes in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul points us back to the church in the, in the wilderness. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, 
and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so here in 1 Corinthians 10, pointing back to the Old Testament, once again, he points to those who tested God. And he says we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And then he describes that destruction. Well, that is precisely what is happening in this chapter that we have read from the book of Acts tonight. God's church is holy. And then if you move on in 1 Corinthians to the 11th chapter, you find the warning about coming to the table of the Lord without adequate preparation, without communion with God, without really knowing Him. And he said, because some of you have done this, some of you have died. God takes seriously how we approach Him. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10? who took strange fire and offered it in a way that God had forbidden them to offer it before the presence of the Lord. And the interesting thing about that passage is that God's fire of judgment came across the mercy seat itself and consumed Nadab and Abihu because they handled holy things recklessly. And so we must not handle holy things recklessly. And surely in our lax day... This is good to dwell on. God's church is called to be holy. Which leads us thirdly to the gravity of sin. If these fell down at the voice of God through Peter, Ananias and Sapphira, then what will it be for hypocrites on the day of judgment? And all of us by nature know something of hypocrisy. But if we are saved by the grace of God and we are filled with His mercy and we know what it means to be redeemed, then we are not hypocrites, we are in union with Christ. But is there someone here, externally, you look really good. You may be involved in all of the worship services and the prayer meetings, you may be at the forefront of providing for others, but you're you're wearing a mask. Others can't see it, but you know deep within that this is not right. Or perhaps you've gone on so far in it that you cannot see and you do not see. But may the word open your heart through the powerful work of the Spirit this evening to show you your need of a Redeemer. Because as we saw in the 139th Psalm that we referenced this morning, God sees the heart. He sees. If we even make our bed in Sheol, He sees. There is no escaping Him. And so do you suppose Ananias and Sapphira were among those pricked in the heart when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2? Well, maybe, maybe not, but surely they knew those who were. They were surrounded by testimonies of God's goodness, surrounded by testimonies of His grace. They were engulfed in a loving fellowship. They heard the word from the apostles themselves. Obviously, they came to the Lord's table. And so it seems that these two were only what the old theologians used to call legal converts. 
rather than real converts. They knew something, perhaps, at one point in their lives of some kind of natural conviction. But it was temporary, and it was not real, and it was not lasting. They had not seen, and I think this is the fundamental point, Ananias and Sapphira had never seen the enormity of sin. For if they had seen the enormity of sin, they would never have attempted to lie to the Holy Spirit of God. They had never seen the enormity of sin. They had never seen the truth and reality that there is no small sin. That even though certain sins are deserving of greater punishment than others, some sins are more heinous than others, yet every sin is deserving of God's infinite displeasure. And that is why we need an infinitely valuable sacrifice. And so in the face of law and gospel, the very apostles who had walked with the Lord Jesus Christ teaching them, telling them about the cross and what the cross meant, telling them about the risen Lord whom they had seen. Yet in the midst of all of this, they had never seen that there is no small sin and they had never seen themselves in light of these great realities. And so, my friend, I ask, do you see yourself, your life, in view of these great realities of law and gospel and Christ and the cross and his resurrection? Are these the things that determine your life and determine your actions? Or, to put it another way, are you learning as a Christian to live coram Deo in the presence of God before the face of God? Are we learning to avoid anything that takes our hearts away from God, anything that takes our focus and attention away from Jesus Christ? Let these truths drive you and me to the cross. But then let me add a fourth thing. Two kinds of fear. There are two kinds of fear. We see fear in this passage. We must never handle holy things recklessly, and evil living in the church causes the gospel to be profaned in the eyes of men. Dennis Johnson made this statement, and I want you to hear it carefully. If the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira shock us, we ourselves may have fallen into their sin. Let me repeat it. If the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira shock us, if we think, oh, God wouldn't take someone's life, I'm absolutely shocked to find this in the Bible. Surely God wouldn't kill people, would he? If the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira shock us, we ourselves may have fallen into their sin. To unpack it another way, I've sometimes shared with you this quotation from John Murray. He says, It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. So anyone who says Christ has come and has died and so I can sin and be easy about it doesn't know grace. This person has never understood sin, has never understood the cross, has never understood the guilt that is his, has never understood the grip and the power of sin in our lives. They are strangers to these things, strangers to the cross, strangers to redemption, strangers to faith in Christ and communion with God, strangers 
to all of these things that in the Bible are called such great salvation. So people of God do not trivialize these things, but let us labor to see that these things go way down deep within the soul. Keep your marker here and turn to the book of Hebrews, the 10th chapter, where again we see these things underscored in a very profound way. Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, 26. In which the writer says by divine inspiration, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So there's this person. He, he's received the knowledge of the truth. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm just going to keep on in my sin. So if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you have those people that claim to be Christians and are members of churches, but it's all external. They're sanctified in the sense by the blood, that is to say in the sense that they're members of the body externally, but they know nothing of these things internally. And on the outside, they can look fine. But inside is filled with dead men's bones. And the text says, if you reject the sacrifice of the Son of God, there's no other sacrifice for sin. There is no other way that we can be pardoned and that we can be forgiven. So I would say, come to the cross and find your refuge there. For there is no other Savior, no other Redeemer, no one else that can cleanse the heart but Jesus Christ our Lord. So anyone who says, Christ has come and has died, and so I grieve over my failings, and I rejoice in his pardon, and I will strive to honor the one who saved me by his blood, abstaining even from the garment that is spotted by the flesh. And yes, I fail, but I'm going to continue to move on in faith in Jesus Christ. This is gospel fear. This is the right kind of fear. And this one lives by grace. This is the right kind of fear for the Christian. And I would say that in this passage, when we read in Acts 5, 5, that great fear came over them, and in verse 11, great fear came over the whole church and upon all who heard these things, that that's the right kind of fear. Because it's the kind of fear that was simply recognizing God is holy after all, isn't he? God is absolutely just after all, isn't he? And I'm going to continue to walk faithfully in the gospel that has been once for all delivered. So great grace and great fear, appropriate fear, 
filial fear. Not fearing condemnation, but fearing to walk in a way contrary to the gospel. Great grace and great fear go together. Perfect love casts out all fear, says John, but he's talking about fear of condemnation. But to have an appropriate fear of the Lord, which the Proverbs tell us is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom, is the right kind of fear for the believer. It begins with fear of judgment that is relieved by grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fear removed, relieved. And we are now free from fear of condemnatory judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But fear of sinning, listen, fear of sinning against my crucified Lord. Fear of sinning against the altogether lovely one, the risen and ascended Christ. Each believer needs to retain and deepen that kind of fear. And this is what Ananias and Sapphira completely lacked. They did not understand sin. They did not understand the gospel. They had no view for the loveliness of Christ. And those who look to the cross stand in awe of God. Gospel fear brings a tender, teachable heart. God pours his mercy into tender hearts. Turn to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 66. Where the transcendent God says, chapter 66, Thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So how awful the judgment of God must be as we consider that Ananias and Sapphira were taken into eternity having lied to the Holy Spirit. But how awful the judgment of God must be is actually seen in a greater way than temporal judgments or even the judgment at the last day. It's seen when we turn our minds, attention, and our heart's affections to the cross. And there we see the sinless Son of God, deluged, covered and clothed by the wrath of God, suffering and bleeding and dying for my sins and yours, removing that wrath by becoming a propitiatory sacrifice, by knowing in his own body and soul what it meant as the Holy Son of God to bear my sins in his own body on the tree and his holy soul to become in the sight of God sin itself. Now, if you want to see how awful the judgment of God must be, yes, look at the judgments in history. 
Yes, look to the judgment at the end of time. But by all means, let us look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And when we keep our gaze there, then we are able to sing with the hymn writer, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. Let us pray. And so, Heavenly Father, once again, we see that you are the transcendent and holy God, absolutely pure in all of your ways and unstained by sin. And yet here is the amazement, and we would always be amazed, that you sent your own holy Son into this world, the second person of the Trinity, that he might die for our sins and shed his blood and remove your wrath. So, Father, because of this, we are saved. And we would live holy. Not, we, are not, we are not perfect in our walk. The time will come in which we will be completely sinless in heaven. But we would be, each of us can say from his heart as a Christian, I would be as holy as a Christian can be this side of heaven. And so, Father, help us to live with the appropriate fear of the Lord gripping our hearts moment by moment, day by day, in the night watch, in the early morning hours, during our work, in our play, and at the end of the day, all the way to the end of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.